My name is Danny Mower and welcome to At The Source. This interview style podcast brings you meaningful conversations and interesting topics from all around the world so that we can learn about our neighbors, this crazy thing called life, and ultimately bring more awareness into our daily experiences. I deeply believe in the art of open communication. So this podcast is really the product of me going to the source of whatever conversation or topic we're having and asking all kinds of questions, both for you and for me to understand more. That's how I roll. I ask a lot of questions and I hope you find inspiration in these conversations and start to ask deeper questions in your own life. Let this be your weekly dose of curiosity and contemplation. And without further ado, enjoy the show. Hi, everybody. I'm so excited for you to listen to this episode today. I had the pleasure of interviewing Eric Pallant. He is, according to his bio on his website, a serious amateur baker, a two-time Fulbright scholar, double award-winning professor, and the Christine Scott Nelson Endowed Professor of Environmental Science and Sustainability at Allegheny College, which is where I went to school and met him. He's been featured on NPR, CNN, BBC, and is acknowledged for his skill in weaving research narratives into compelling stories for the Gresham Lecture Series in London, The Perfect Loaf, Bread Symposia, podcasts, and articles for magazines such as Grastonomica, Sierra, and Science. Eric wrote Sourdough Culture, A History of Bread Making from Ancient to Modern Bakers, and this book is fabulous. I highly recommend it. I read it while I was sailing... Um, this past winter down from Maine to the Florida Keys and I read it on the boat and it gave me such entertainment um, during that time and it was really informative and exactly what that bio says is correct. He did a really amazing job weaving narratives and just bringing to life the history of bread. So if you're a foodie at all, I highly, 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 highly recommend reading that book and and listening to this podcast because we go into Eric's history, his personal history around food. And initially, the podcast um, that I recorded with him was going to be for a slightly different version of this podcast. It was going to be called Food Runner, and it was going to be more focused on food. You will see as time goes on that I will center around food more than once um, in this podcast at the source, but at that time I was interviewing him for a food specific podcast. So you'll hear me say food runner at least once during the interview. And that's just what that means. I was going for a different name and different kind of theme, but I've broadened it out and I'm just interviewing lots of people nowadays, food or not food on this podcast. And I wanted to bring this back. So it was recorded in early March of this year and it was so much fun and anytime that I get to chat with Eric I am just over the moon because we share so much in common about our love for food and our love for history and culture around food and we have had a really deep friendship surrounding that and surrounding different places we've been to um, on that food journey and so it's a real pleasure of mine to introduce Eric Pallant to at the source and let you just get to know him a little bit because he is truly a light in this world. Okay, enjoy. All right, thank you so much uh, for meeting with me today. We have 
an episode of Food Runner, this podcast where we're exploring food through the personal stories of the interviewees. And I have one of my favorite people on here today, Eric Pallant. And I'll go ahead and let you introduce yourself. <laughs> Guess what? It's also, yeah, I'm still Eric Pallant. Um, uh, professor of Environmental Science and Sustainability at Allegheny College in Meadville, Pennsylvania. And we met back when I was a student at Allegheny and you were the chair there at the time. And um, I don't, do you remember exactly how we met? I think it was my sophomore year because you were gone on sabbatical your, my first year. And oh. at some point, I met you and we just started talking food and Judaism and you were the person who was like, Hey, there's this program in Israel. I think you'd be really interested in. And that was so influential to me and my journey. And I really became obsessed with food while I was there <laughs> and had this whole, uh, continued story after I came back that, that year and uh, went back to Israel and Palestine and was interviewing um, my peers at that program about their food cultures and their histories. So it really was like the start of this uh, just passion that's developed of mine. And you're one of the people who I can trace back to towards the beginning of that. So it's really great to have you on here and I'm, I'm really excited. Well, thank you. I, you know, it's funny, I cannot recall how or when we've met but I, um, I, all I know is that you and I have been talking food and culture and geography, uh, it seems like for years. Yeah. And, <laughs> and when you first proposed this to me, uh, my first thought was, oh, this is going to be so fun. And my second thought is, we're not going to be able to cut ourselves off after. And now <laughs> we're just yeah. so much to talk about. So, but I'm going to direct. You tell me what you want to <laughs> talk about, and we'll see if we can stay on track. All right. Um, so yeah, I would love to, I mean, I have the pleasure of knowing you and a little bit more about your background, but if you would just kind of take me back to where your own food passions and your love of food kind of started, who, who was there with you, who are kind of the key people who might've been in the kitchen with you, because um, our the listeners don't know yet, but you also have authored uh, a book about sourdough. Sourdough, sourdough cultures is a fantastic book. Um, so you have your own really rich experience with food. So take me back to to some of the earlier memories. I, you know, I, I think it goes back to uh, my parents and being encouraged to experiment in the kitchen to mm. make my own foods and my own mistakes and my own um, discoveries. And uh, I, I carried on that tradition with my kids who also learned uh, early on that they could do what they wanted in the kitchen and that whenever they asked me a question about, well, do you think I should add more of this or do you think I should stir this more or should I cook this longer? They always got the same answer, which I didn't realize was, it was not intentional on my part, but I always said, well, what do you think? Mm. And, and that infuriated them as kids <sighs> because 
they, they, they was like, I'm looking for the answer. But what it did is it turned out that both of my kids are now really marvelous, intuitive cooks, right? They've just had mm. a sense of what, what goes with what and how to make things with whatever's in the kitchen and how to work with whatever is in season. And they now torture their friends when their friends are like, oh, I want to learn how to make that. And they'll say, I'll show you. And halfway through, they'll say, well, sh should I add more of this? And they always say, what do you think? <laughs> And, and then tell them a story about how they were, how discouraged they were as kids, but, but that is how you learn. And I think that's how I learned. And I, I should add that uh, I am the product of a, a mixed marriage in terms of my parents' cooking styles. In mm. that my dad, who, who this is very, it's comparatively unusual that uh, uh, my dad who was born in 1932, was very accomplished in the kitchen, right? Men of his generation mm. didn't really cook. But he cooked like a scientist, like a scientist that he was. And so he he would use every dish in the and every measuring thing in the kitchen because he was reading the meniscus on, you know, if it said half a cup of something, he would get exactly half a cup and he would follow mm. the precisely. And my mom was the opposite kind of cook, which was like, hmm. Well, this would be good with some nuts in it. And uh, why don't we throw in some raisins and uh, a couple mm -hmm. of other things and see what happens. And um, I, I, you know, I'm learning that there are two kinds of, of sort of food preparers in the world. And uh, <laughs> I'm curious, which one are you? you know? <laughs> Definitely the, let me throw some of this in here and do a little bit of that. While, while you were speaking on that, it reminds me just kind of generally how one approaches life, you know, is it like rigid or are you just kind of adding this in as it feels fit? And I'm totally that like, all right, I think I need a little bit more discipline here and a little less here. <laughs> I never thought of that, but that is a really, that's a really profound observation. You know, now that I think about it and start to recognize people who are either fairly rigid in their in the kitchen or also pretty rigid people and they they're sort of perfectionists and they get really perfect results most of the time but they're also lead fairly restrictive lives and then um there are people like us you know who are just like well, let's try this and see what happens i don't quite remember what i did but uh it worked yeah. this time and it didn't work another time and uh, we'll, we'll keep trying it. And now what do we what do we make of people who are sort of afraid to even try to cook? Right. right. Afraid to, you know, like, I don't know how to work in the kitchen. And so I'm just going to go buy whatever's been prepared for me. And mm -hmm. what does that say about their personalities and their willingness to sort of break out of their their comfort zones. I mean, uh, you and I have talked about this, but like, if I were ever going to write a cookbook, it would be like, how to make something out of whatever's in your refrigerator. Right. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Well, I think it's, I think it's a really beautiful thing going back to how you were raising your kids and creating a space in which mistakes were allowed to be made. Right. Mm -hmm. So then that's helped create their personalities where they are resourceful and they see what's around and they're intuitive and you take that same person who doesn't know how to cook well maybe they're afraid they haven't been in like a safe 
an environment for them to make mistakes. So yeah, really interesting, like how that kind of maps onto people or how it could map on, not that it's anything set in stone, you know, but just like a fun observation. Yeah, I'm going to be thinking about this one for a while. I think you're, I think you're onto something. Does that feel true to like about your parents? Was your mom more fluid in some ways in life or was your dad more kind of staccato or? uh... Staccato is a good description. (laughs) 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 Um, Yeah, it it, it mapped to, to, right, who follows directions (laughs) (laughs) and who doesn't follow directions, um, who has sort of courage to experiment and not it, it breaks down soon enough right there yeah for sure I don't, it, it, <laughs> it doesn't it doesn't go very far but but at least um with respect to our boy i'm gonna have to think about this with respect to our sustenance right mm. Which is how we prepare ourselves and and as you and i have talked on so many occasions uh, about whether food is joy mm. or joyful right Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you know we also run into people who are you know eating is a chore it's just something they have to do I, I don't I can't comprehend people like that I have no idea how anybody gets to be someone who doesn't love food um, and I think what I what I what I've liked best about working with you and and your adventures and going to the Arva Institute is um, what does food tell us about other people's cultures? Yeah. How does food open the door to the experience of people not like ourselves? And, um, you know, I I sometimes worry just a little bit about cultural appropriation, about sort of taking on somebody's, uh, somebody else's way of cooking. But more often, I think, no, 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 I'm doing this as an expression of, of love for like, right. I want to learn more about India. <laughs> and yeah. I'm going to, I have no intention of ever being as good as your aunties were at making their Indian food. But, but I just, it, it just tells me so much about a people and a place and a, and a time and what's meaningful to them. Yeah. It's the geography that I really love. Absolutely. And I think it, like talking about cultural appropriation, I think it's an important conversation to have, but the intention to me is what is really important in all of it. And um, making someone's food and paying respect to, to where it came from, like, I think that's such an honorable thing. And if you were to sit down with the grandmothers who made the food, they would absolutely want to share with you and not mess like, you know, guard it and say, you can't, you can't be in on this. Like that's, that's the opposite of what food and like food does for people when people are connected and feeling, you know, a part of a tribe, you're contributing to the health of the whole. So, you know, you know, it's really true. And I've, I've discovered this and this will probably, anyway, it's germane to our conversation. So I teach a, a class every other year, and I don't recall if you were in this class or not called soil to plate. And yep. <laughs> that class made me mad, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but one of the things I do now is I sort of, I open the class by asking people about 
foods that are of some kind of ethnic origin and that have some kind of special meaning. And, and there's a universality, and you were just touching on this, about grandmothers, about grandmothers in all cultures express their love with food, too much of it, <laughs> right? That every grandmother wants to just smother you, drown you in, have some more, have some more, yeah. right? Yeah. And, and it, there are Asian grandmothers and there are Middle Eastern grandmothers and there are African grandmothers and they're all doing the same thing. And I love that, that, that yeah. it all cultures. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and even, so there's so many different tangents I'd love to go on, but just like talking about grandmas immediately. So I have a grandmother on my dad's side who, um, she has never been really a big cook. It's always like the role of buying food and buying prepared food has always kind of been what she did and how she grew up or interacted with the world. And so there were some, like, you know, holidays, we would have some home cooked meals, but even if it were just like, we went and got little Caesar's pizza, you know, not the creme de la creme, but it's just like, here's some food, make sure you have enough of it. Like that's still exactly. that grandmotherly, like, did you get enough? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, someday that's going to be you. Oh yeah, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Not serving little Caesar's pizza, but. You no, know. but you're going to like, here's some more and try this. And yeah. yeah. Well, that's been the most fun part about just becoming an adult and having, you know, a space to invite people in is creating that space of like oh you're hungry like let me let me feed you let me show you love through this food and I think that that it's definitely one of my love languages and um whether in a ro romantic relationship or just like you're my friend like I want to feed you and so, I think yeah go for it no I, I discovered recently and it's funny you do this like I, I uh, my my regular presentation I have a couple presentations on sourdough bread now ends with love mm -hmm. and 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 pictures of people sharing and loving and one of the the things I've discovered is the best part of bread bread tastes best if you give it to somebody else mm. Mm. you know I just like oh like I I can take bread out of the oven I think this is amazing and delicious but not right. as amazing as delicious as if I, I'm sharing it. And, Absolutely. And, yeah. Yeah, I find that my, it is so much easier for me to cook for someone else than it is if I'm just by myself, you know, mm -hmm. because I don't know if that's something that you experience, but like the motivation I have to like feed someone I love good food, like absolutely motivates me to prepare a, a beautiful home cooked meal Versus if I'm by myself, I'm like, oh, okay, I could have like a bowl of cereal or something, right, you know, and right, just like right. opt out. But it's like a form of love. So then it's sometimes when I'm really, when I'm by myself for a while, it's an act of love to prepare myself a home-cooked meal and something that is like nourishing to me on all levels. Yeah. My happiest space actually is in the kitchen with the people I love preparing food together. Yeah, yeah. That is my my happy place. Mm -hmm. It's so good. And so I wanted to circle back to one of the things that 
you had said about that person who doesn't, you know, like to cook and how, or not even like to cook, but like to eat or, or where's that disconnect with food? Um, And I think it like to me and just what I've witnessed in my own studies around culture and food is there's an emotional disconnection between food and that sense of community. And Mm -hmm. so like with the, you know, in our culture, there's a lot of prepared foods and you can buy things and it's not a labor of love. You're not, you don't have to be in a community aspect in order to prepare food. There's not that familial connection. So if you're always growing up and it's kind of like a means to an end and maybe meals aren't really a thing that your family did, or you, you're always sitting and watching TV and you don't have that face-to-face emotional connection, like I can see how it could turn into, you know, I don't really not knowing food as a means of connection. Um, So that's just like a reflection that came to me while you were talking about that. I was like, well, what is that person? Like, how, how did that happen? Because food and community for human beings are so interconnected. Right, right. And when we have like that, disconnect it it makes me think that there's a community disconnect in there as well an emotional disconnection yeah yeah I'm, i'm gonna i'm gonna have to think on that one i mean i think that's certainly one of the explanations there are probably multiple explanations for people who don't yeah don't get joy from from food and whether they and and probably also don't get joy from community and now the question is are people who are yeah i don't know yeah (laughs) It's a different true. path. Yeah. That's the fun of ethnography. There's no answer. It's just I know, like, right? Yeah, right. What's not to love about that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So if you would tell me a little bit more about the different food traditions you have in your life and what like I, I'm interested in, is there anything that you kind of have a tradition with your kids that you didn't necessarily grow up with? Um, things that kind of came you know, through you and your kids. And yeah, if you would just tell me a little bit more about how you experience food in the world. Um, so so my, <clears throat> what comes immediately to mind is, is um, my food traditions are Jewish food traditions and that the, um, both in terms of the Jewish cycles of life of birth and, and bar mitzvahs and marriages and deaths, they're all, uh, associated with foods, as are every holiday uh, that that comes around the years, associated with a particular kind of food, uh, as well as uh, uh, so that that's one tradition in that all of the time growing up, our family that my kids were growing up, and, and to this day, our kids, I mean, our family celebrates the Jewish holidays with the foods affiliated with those holidays. Um, I, I would. Uh, I would say it's overlaid, overlain by uh, the tradition of a geography of where I grew up, right? And so, and, and they're not that distinct, right? So, but growing up in the New York metropolitan area, the foods that are end of uh, the 1960s and 1970s, like there are foods from that era in that place that I still consider to be my, like, uh, Leota's Bakery, Pepe's Pizza, mm-hmm. uh, 
the Moishi's Deli, you know, th those are all like, my mouth is watering just saying those. <laughs> yeah. Saying those things. And, and so my kids have those same traditions and then their overlay is uh, they grew up in Northwest Pennsylvania. Right. right. And so uh, on top of that, as I'm sure you can appreciate, they they love the what I consider to be our most ethnic food is the dairy barn, which is soft serve <laughs> ice cream, right? <laughs> and and garbage fries, right? Yeah, right. Which is our ethnic food, and and we could trace back the history of where those came from and why they're in Northwest Pennsylvania, especially. Right. Um, so so. I, I think the hard one, the, the the cultural one I can get my head wrapped around, the one that's harder for me to step outside of and see, and you probably would be a better at doing this than I am, is 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 uh, temporal, you know, just like generational mm -hmm. food. Like once recently, here's a really interesting observation. My daughter said to me, she said, well, of course you cook that way. You learned in the 70s. And and in the 70s was sort of the rediscovery of the organic food movement, the rediscovery of making food from food, right. uh, making things from scratch uh, was a very 70s thing. It wasn't very flashy. It's, it was nothing that you would find on YouTube now or on a, mm -hmm. a cooking channel. It was like, can you make your own soy milk? Can you make your own <laughs> goat cheese and things like that? And and so I still do a lot of cooking in that way because that's how I, I that's when I think I really came into my own. It'd be interesting to see, you know, 30 mm. years from now that you are gonna people are gonna look back at you and you're like, oh yeah, Danielle, you know, she she learned on a farm, you know, and so she deals with all these farm things like fresh eggs and you know, fresh, you know, yeah, fresh and stuff like that. Uh because that's that's sort of your generation right now, right? Yeah, it, it's in, yeah. That's a really interesting point about where time crosses over with just like general culture. Because yeah, you're still like you're experiencing that revival within a culture that previously did not value uh, whole foods in that way. Post, you know. 1945 post-war right and then this kind of like remembrance of wait <laughs> we can actually grow quality food way better than someone can sell it to us for and um you know that going in and out of style throughout the time until you know my me coming of age and yeah I don't I yeah it's an interesting thing I mean for me there's so much of like the environmental perspective that's so deeply entwined to my experience of food and my desire to grow and cultivate like nutrient-dense food for myself and my community um, and I think a lot of that came from I guess the environmental movement that's going that's been going on but my awareness of it and going to school for environmental science and then just kind of looking at everything and going, wait, what's going on? And how can I experience the world through food? And wait, this is affecting this over here. And this is affecting this and it's all connected. And so, yeah. Um, 
So the, the, the only, I mean, I've, I've been doing this research for a while, right? And as I'm sure you know, the number of farmers in the U.S. has been declining since 1900, right? It's just been yeah. getting fewer and fewer and fewer. And the number of farmers and, and farmers' ages are going up and up and up. With one exception, it turns out like in the last, it's now really noticeable in the last 10 to 20 years that young female farmers mm -hmm. are increasing at a really countable rate. Yeah. So there's a real, now they're not running, you know, 5,000 acre farms, um, but in terms of the number of farmers, there's just this total transformation from farmers. Who, I mean, I was at a farm meeting, who was that a fascinating thing last week? And, and uh, you know, there were, there, there were only three, this is like conventional corn, soy, every mm -hmm. additive known, to the chemical industry farm meeting and there were there yeah. were five women in a hundred people and mm. and fewer than I would say 80% were over the age of 60. Mm. Right. Different from if you go to the organic farmers association or whatever state you're in. Right. Or, right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean like from my own perspective and being a part of farming and in a lot of ways over the past few years, like it's a very empowering thing to one, <laughs> physically move dirt and soil. And like, you're really putting your sweat and energy into cultivating the earth in a certain way. And then you have that, like, for me, a some kind of spiritual connection of like, okay, I have like, I'm planting these things and I'm watching them grow and I'm tending to them and then I get to eat it. And it's just like this beautiful cycle. Like I've done different hard labor in my life and farming is by far my favorite because I get to eat, you know, at the end of the day or at the end of the season, I get to eat the fruits of my labor. And I like, I experienced so much grounding and benefits to my physical health and my nutrition just by being on a farm and eating like you see how quick things start to decompose just like sitting out and then you look at the grocery store and this thing's been on the shelf for three years like is that <laughs> still even food you know and it really it, it it makes you think so I think it's awesome that there's so many women who are just like one finding access to land but two like growing food for their communities I think it's a really beautiful act of courage and um it's something that we need more of yeah, and it raises the larger question of uh, that I've been wrestling with really for my whole professional life, which is why don't men care about this stuff? Mm. I mean, it's gross generalization, right? But but, but wh why not? You know, it just wh why don't men get that same sense of comfort of putting their hands in the earth and of nurturing other people you know there are some gross generalizations here that I, I i i shudder to go after about women and nurturing and caring about the earth and it, it feels really confining but but it, it the overlap is pretty large and um it, it's for the same thing like i've looked at environmental science programs all over the country and they're all two-thirds female mm -hmm. at least two-thirds female and it's a yeah what is it about men that they don't care about the future of the planet? Mm. Uh, and it's the same thing that they don't care about their community. It's not that they don't care, it's just it, 
it, it doesn't occur to them. I, you know, they have more self-interest. Is a culture? I don't know what it is, but it. Um, you, you you spoke about it very passionately. You know about what yeah. it does, to me, and it's like it seems to me like what you just described should be true for everybody. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I have a few comments, but the first would just be a question to you of like, as a man, why does it matter to you? Uh, I've thought about that a lot. I've, I've thought about that a lot. And, and honestly, um, it, it, it took a while for the two paths of my life to cross, but um, it, it comes from, uh, um, I was not raised in a religious household, but the values that are essential to Judaism, tikkun yeah. olam, uh, to repair the earth, were just drilled into me. Um, as, as the essentials of of what it meant to be a mensch, to be a real person, to to yeah. was um, and I have thought about that ever since I was sort of self aware enough to be thinking about what my role in life was. And certainly, right, I'm certainly capable of saying, uh, "Screw it, I'm just going to go out for myself and make as much money as I can." And and yeah. in the you know at the end of the day, I I can't. Right, that that in the at the end of the day, I have to say I've done my best in it to to make the world a better place, and and I think that comes from the kind of Jewish cultural uh, 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 upbringing that I had, that I now recognize also from a, a religious perspective. I'm you know yeah. studying religion more, and I I see that overlap in ways that my parents didn't recognize consciously, or they're my cat to ruin our <laughs> to ruin our podcast but uh, uh but they are the product of many generations of jews who we could trace back to they're the teachings that say it's your job to uh, continue the struggle to make life better for uh for people who've been treated unjustly or the planet yeah. in this case mm -hmm. yeah i think you know I've definitely met a lot of men as I've farmed who have been very caring about what's going on, but the, those are the people who choose to be in that in that environment, in that situation. Um, but hearing you speak about like, just the way that you were um, talking about men and women, it kind of made me think again about, well, one, we have this broader culture that, has swept across the world, right? In the form of capitalism, which I don't think capitalism is inherently wrong. It's a system. And, but it like capitalizes on certain resources and the culture that we exist in, it's very individualistic. And all right, like I've got my eye on the prize. No one else matters. Whereas like, which I can see, you know, being fed to, boys and men as they grow up like it's your responsibility to go out there and make a name for yourself or go out there and make money or provide or whatever but there's not that community that communal support and that communal accountability in my eyes anymore um I don't see that in my life in and in, in the men's in the men's lives that I know um 
And, and so and, you're, you're really onto something because I, I was aware of this 10 or 15 years ago, but it's now just creeping into the mainstream literature, which is that men and boys are failing at alarming rates uh, in schools and in jobs. They're just mm. that lack of support for, for men yeah. has become really epidemic. People are still not really paying as much attention to it as I think they should be. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but their boys are given this like you shall succeed message without the support and and especially the uh, let's bring it full circle um, uh, an avenue where they can fail and try yeah. again right yeah. failure is a kind of shame that really is right something that you you avoid at all costs as a as a young man and and yeah. the best way to avoid it is to not try. Mm-hmm. yeah yeah to it, it i'm getting chills just like talking about it because it feels like um a lack of support you know of like this is like instead of just focusing on all right this is me and mine and what i'm going to go and get and maybe i have a family that i'm supporting but it only goes that far instead of like recognizing how interconnected just our human family is and that my actions affect someone over here and over there and over there and I think that just the way that like maybe our culture or our brains I don't really know that this is a generalization as well but for women I think it's easier to connect into the community aspect because you're you are taught to consider others Mm -hmm. and that you should be aware of the impact that your actions have upon not only your family, but, you know, like a random person, a stranger, which can be a hindrance in a lot of ways, because then you're over, you know, concerned with what other people are thinking. But I think it also is just like, there's that greater awareness that your actions affect other people in positive and negative ways. And for men, like, I don't know, like I, I didn't see that growing up. I didn't see that level of accountability and calling people out of like, Hey, when you do that, like that not only hurts this person in the moment, but that could impact them for years. And so that longevity and like, I've heard this discussed before, but this lack of, um, like a, the lack of initiation in life. So you're a boy in our culture today and you start to go through puberty. There's nothing, there's no tools there to help you understand that you are going through a profound life transition. And same again, when you become an adult, there's no one there, you know, in previous, cult, or like in the past, you'd have to go out and kill a tiger or something, you know, like this right. is what marks the transition from a boy to a man. And you have a very clear understanding of like, this is how I operate in the world. We do not have that. We have video games. We have, you know, like people running around with their phones and TikTok. And I just think that there's no, there's no safe structure in order to understand what you're, how to be a boy or a man in the world. You know, it's just kind of like a free for all chaos where if you push harder, you win. Yeah. Yeah. I'm smirking because this is a classic. This is a classic Danielle and Eric conversation where we started with <laughs> we started with vegetables, right? <laughs> we started with vegetables and now we're really dealing with all of society. But this is yeah, I'm totally with you. Yeah, well, it's it's all connecting, you know. It it's 
it's intense. I don't know what else. To say, yeah, no, I, and I, I, my dream at some level, I just can't quite figure out how to operationalize it. But at some point is to sort of take underrepresented communities. And now that you're talking about it, probably boys and show them how to bake bread. Yeah. Mm. You know, how to make, just because I think there's like, who doesn't enjoy at any age playing with their food, with their hands. Right. Right. But there's something magical about starting with dough and stuff stuck all over your hands and ending up with something <laughs> just like, oh my God, this is bread. Yeah. And you can eat it and you can make pizza. And like, really? know, what teenage boy doesn't love pizza? Or does anyone? No, I look at those know, statistics. Right? I look at those statistics and I, I'm going to, I'm going to blow it. It's not exactly right, but something like every day, one in eight Americans has some pizza or something like that, unless mm. they're male between the ages of 15 and 25. And then it's one in four. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Well, just, okay. Like to set, to, to get back onto the food train, right? Like yeah, how beautiful is pizza? Because it's like this way I mean, you're using bread and bread is a beautiful way of like feeding a lot of people with not a lot of ingredients. Right. And like, then you're creating this beautiful, you know, circular magic and you put some sauce and some vegetables on it. And then you have a meal for multiple people. Yeah. I just love bread and I love pizza. <laughs> just, Who doesn't, like, right? Why, you know? why is, right. Why is pizza sort of swept the world right you you can go anywhere in the world and see pizza and see local variations on that on that pizza you know because it is in some ways kind of a perfect food yeah <laughs> yeah um so tell me a little bit about your book and okay. the journey of your book and kind of what i mean i read it so i know that backstory because you talk about it in the book but um yeah just a little bit about what it felt like for you to one have your own passion but then to go through the process of writing a book and selling a book and how you feel on the other side of that it's a, a great a great question so hi my name is danny mower and i'm interrupting your podcast listening experience to share with you a very special special program that is coming out this next month. It's called Goddess Rising and it's for the people in this world who are just tired and sick and sick and tired of not getting what they want, of being confused, of thinking that you want something and then getting something else. And it's for the person who's ready to unify their will. There are often unconscious agreements that we have made, beliefs that we believe, and stories that we made when we were younger that dictate whether or not we can have the things that we want later on in life. For example, if you were young and grew up in a family that money was scarce in and you believe that you can't have money, when you are older, or that money is not safe, when you're older and you say, I want lots of money, there's a belief inside of you that says money's not safe, we can't have it, we already agreed to it. And so you have this internal disconnect. You have a conflict of your will. You have your will going in two opposing directions and thus nothing is happening. 
And so Goddess Rising is really all about identifying these shadow aspects, identifying where these unconscious conflicts are coming from, and unifying your will by clearing them out and rewriting the story. If this is interesting to you at all, there's going to be way more information coming out soon, but for now, you can go to sourcemagnified.com forward slash waitlist to get onto the Goddess Rising waitlist. It's just an email. There's no commitment. Just let us know you're interested and we'll communicate with you and you can really help us shape the experience. It'll be a twice weekly, five week event. So there will be, again, two meetings for five weeks where we will go into different healing practices, somatic practices. You'll learn breath work, we'll meditate, and we'll move energy through our bodies and really ground into the goddess energy archetype. Sourcemagnified.com forward slash waitlist. Let me know you're interested and we will get you in. Thanks so much. Enjoy the show. The impetus for the book, and it says so in the first couple of pages, is, is I was given a sourdough starter. Um, I, I, this is before the internet, before YouTube. And so I learned to make sourdough bread just by trial and error. And I made lots of mistakes and I got better and better slowly, slowly. And, and, and got to the point where I could make a lot of pretty decent bread as my kids were teenagers who could eat a decent mm -hmm. amount of bread. Um, and, and as I was working with this starter that I had, I, at that point I had two and then soon three different starters with different origins and so forth. I realized I had been cooking with the same starter for 20 years, mm. and, and which was longer than I had my own children. They were still teenagers mm -hmm. and, um, and it was alive and I was keeping it alive and I hadn't lost it or, or ruined it or you know, for 20 years, like, like it's hard to keep a house plant for 20 years. And right. Um, so I want to know, okay, and somebody had given it to me and it was alive and they gave it to me. And I started the process of saying like, well, how old is this? And, and does it matter that it's old? And, and, and once I realized that it came from the gold rush of Cripple Creek, Colorado in 1893, I realized my starter is half as old as the United States. Mm -hmm. um, and so the culture that this, this little jar of Bleh, you know, of smush that's in my refrigerator has has lived through half the history of the United States. Um, it is embodied in some way in this in this in this sourdough culture, and so I wanted to see how far back I, I could trace it. And so that that sounds very simple and elegant. Um, it, the, the actual research and learning how to write a book and write a book proposal and get it published that was a ten year process, and. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, 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 is the steepest learning curve I, I'd ever climbed um, mm. was to figure out how that process worked. Like maybe by year six, I realized you do not get published by sending a proposal to a publisher. You must have an agent do that for you. Mm. But you also don't get an agent unless you've already published a book. And so how to break that took me another two years to figure out how to make that happen. It turned out it was not very complicated. It's like getting any other job. You have to know somebody who knows somebody who's willing right. to introduce you. Um, and and th then it turned out that, that not just writing the book, but um, I actually, you have to love writing if you want to, and storytelling, I think if you want to write, write a book. Um, 
I also really love the editing process. Like the, the editors, mm. what an editor can do for, for, what an editor did for my writing just blew my mind. Just like mm. my editor went through my manuscript six times in six months. Like I can't read my own stuff six times in six months. And she was right. able to do it with a finer and finer comb on each pass. And keep in mind that if I change this word on page 124, it would change the arc of the story, you know, that you mentioned in the first chapter to the last chapter. Mm. That was just, I love that. Yeah. Uh, what they could do. And 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 enough that I'm I'm in the beginning stages of writing a second book because it's awesome. Uh, it it was fun enough. Yeah. Is that going to be a food related one or something different it is and you will appreciate this uh it, it the working title is is called loaf um how bread and maybe everything else is really made and, <laughs> um, it's really the story of all of the inputs to a conventional loaf of bread from the from the the phosphorus mines in morocco to the insecticide plants in louisiana to the mm. giant mills in um, you know, in St. Louis and all the barges and trucks and trains and stuff that move it all to wow. make a loaf of bread and how, why there are 35 other ingredients in a conventional loaf of bread. It's right. a, you'll recognize it as a life cycle. Uh, analysis. Yeah. And the, the point being is, is if bread, which can be made with only four ingredients, has this much hidden behind it, um, what does that say about the rest of our consumer culture, right? Right. We're gonna break down all the other things we consume. Uh, ooh, there's a there's a big footprint for yeah. all of these other things. But um, so I, I, in May, I'm going to Morocco to visit the world's largest phosphorus mine. And, cool. Um, yeah, to start there and finish it all the way up, actually at the sewage treatment plant when all those nutrients keep on going. To the wow. land and how crazy is that it's yeah, also that's it's also designed a little bit as a critique of of uh farm to table which is uh -huh. that you can't really do farm to table without thinking of there it's too small a picture to look at farm to table which is even even really local local farms have to have inputs and then right. inputs have to come from someplace and if everybody who eats the food that comes off the farm goes to the bathroom and that waste goes to the sewage treatment plant it's a linear system mm -hmm. it's, it's not really sustainable and and um so anyway just trying to i just it seems like a fun project so yeah it sounds like a deep dive like, it sounds like soil to plate that class of just like tracing everything all the way through exactly. um very very interesting and yeah i'd be interested in reading it as well that class, by the way, I made a comment about how it made me yeah. mad earlier. <laughs> yeah, I'm curious. Like, yeah, why did it make you so angry? <laughs> well, I thought that the content of the class was was great. It's, you know, you're going through and you're like, we went to a bunch of different farms um, and we're tracing, you know, all these inputs and everything. What made me so mad about the class, and I remember just like talking to you after one of our classes and just being so pissed, <laughs> was, um, we went to a farm and like the students in our class, they were 
like talking smack on the farmers and critiquing them as if they knew how to run their operation. And that just really like annoyed me because yes, you can have, you know, constructive criticism and like, Hey, I see what you're doing here. And maybe that, you know, could be done better. But these random people, like 18-year-olds coming in and thinking they know how to run a freaking farm business better, like that shit pissed me off so bad. And I like, I I think that there's definitely space to like make informed critiques, but it was just like, it felt really ignorant. And I just had a hard time dealing with that. <laughs> right. right. It takes a long time um... To, to, to get students to recognize that they don't know it all. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That, that there aren't easy answers to any of these questions. And, and if there were, we would be doing them. Uh, right. so, so we now visit three different dairy farms, um, one with 450 milking cows, um, one with, uh, 1,500 milking cows, totally sort of automated, wow. some Mexican workers, $10 million, at least $15 million worth of high precision GPS guided self-driving mm. tractors, you know, that end. And then we go to a regenerative farm with, you know, like 45 milking mm -hmm. cows and they all have their pros and cons. And so what happens is students think, well, this is how it should be done or whatever right. the farmer tells them they believe 100%. And then we go see the next farm and they realize, well, wait a minute, this is sort of better than the last one. And then the next one's a little bit better, right? But they all yeah. have their, their pros mm -hmm. and cons, so. Right. Yeah, and I that's essentially what you told me at the, when I visited you and was just like, Eric, I'm so mad, like what's happening? You're like, the process of understanding what's going on and that you know everyone's just kind of working with what they know at the time and just so you know like let it let it work itself out well um, work itself out and then there's one more step and then go out and do it right yourself right yeah you did mm -hmm. you did it in multiple ways right you, you went out and 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 decided that that you were going to spend a year talking about chickpeas, <laughs> <laughs> right? But but it was just like the conversation you and I are having now. It's not about the chickpea. It's about the people and different cultures and how they relate to, to chickpeas and their own cultural foods and their own, right? And that it wasn't just something you were learning. It was something that you felt was important for other people to observe and then you went on from there to to work on a farm right and 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 to become more and more proficient at growing food and turning that into something worth eating and celebrating and so uh and you're not done right none of us are no <laughs> none, none of us are done. yeah right but yeah. I, I guess that's also what i ask of people which is no you can't you can't just learn this and walk away right yeah yeah, definitely the lessons I've learned in my schooling have just like, they're still right there, you know? And um, so where I'm at in, in Florida, there's just like the way that sewage has been dealt with has been like not 
and, and I'm not like super well versed, but like up until recently, sewage just being dumped in the canals where we're at and just like not treated or or injected, you know, 60 feet underground, which is not that far. And um, just all the ripple effects and everything with those train derailments and like toxic chemicals and the, like the effect that that has on farms and food and just, you know, it's really, it can be so overwhelming. And I remember also having this conversation with you being an environmental science student and being like, how do I deal with knowing how much is going on and how much of it has negative effects on like the ecosystem, which includes us, <laughs> you know, and our environment. And like, how do you deal with that and still be a functional person? I know. I do know the answer to that. And, and the answer to that is personal sustainability. Yeah. It's totally important, right? You know the answer to this. And personal sustainability is, is about a kind of nourishment that brings you not just enough sustenance to get day by day, although there are days we all feel like that's all I've got. Right. Uh, but if, if you have the right community and the right foods and the right you know, atmosphere, um, you can go out and, and, and take on another day and make another difference. So I do have to ask you a question. It's like, what's next for you? Yeah. Maybe, um, it's, this. Maybe it's your podcast series. Yes. So I kind of twofold. I'm really excited about this podcast because it's something that you and I were talking about, you know, however many years ago and just kind of like I was sitting with myself of like, what, do, what is something I want to do that I just haven't been doing? And it's this is having conversations and something really struck a chord with me when that train derailed in um, East Palestine, East Palestine, Ohio, I think it was. And um, which is like less than two hours from my home, you know, and just understanding how connected everything is and just being like, what the fuck? <laughs> like yes. so frustrated. And, and I just like keep coming back to food and conversations around food being a connecting piece where we're able to hear you know conversations this is why I love podcast formats because you're able to hear someone who's like different than you you know or maybe they're similar but like being able to hear perspectives and information from those people and their lived stories that might influence you and how you operate in the world and what you care about and I want to share that and I want to use my voice and I want to, you know, like invite people onto this train with me because, or not train, because, oh my God, I'm just talking about train derailing, but like, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, let's go for a walk and talk about food and there's like really good stuff in there and there's also pain and I think it's a really beautiful vessel to just like experience humanity and experience the best of it and recognize where we could, you know, do some work. So I'm excited about this podcast. I'm excited to continue to have conversations with people um, because I love it so much and I love food so much. And I just like want to talk and eat all the time. Um, but also something else that's coming up for me is um, really intentionally going to be uh, farming this next year, but having a, you know, herb production and really getting into different medicinal herbs and um, 
just starting to yeah have a business around that using like it, so the farm that I'm at we're not certified organic but everything is you know essentially organic but um yeah just like using the resources that I am blessed enough to have around me and do something that I love and hopefully make a difference in other people's lives so that's that's what's up next for me <laughs> perfect perfect I'm beaming I'm beaming because <laughs> exactly and I'm just I'm just thrilled and we should close it on that because yeah. I have I have a three o'clock but that is perfect <laughs> closure to this 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 conversation because it it's everything I believe in yeah so thank you so much and where can people find you if uh if they're interested in reading or working with you so ericpellant.com one word ericpellant.com so awesome Thank you so much for taking the time to be on this podcast with me. It was so great to interview you because you're you. I remember having a conversation. What if I did a podcast for my senior thesis? Didn't end up working out that way, but here we are. Here we are. Here we are. So do me a favor. Let me know when it drops and how to find it. Yeah. Awesome. And good luck. This is it, it's you. You should just you should do this. Yes. Oh, thank you, Eric. All right. Bye. <laughs> Bye. Thank you so much for joining me today and listening to this conversation. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a great review on your streaming platform and don't forget to turn on notifications for our next episode drop. If you learned anything, please share the love with a friend and tag me on Instagram at SourceMagnified. Find us on our website at SourceMagnified.com where we have all of your breathwork and mindfulness needs covered. Have a blessed day. Talk to you soon. Ciao.